tell you a story about my youth work, but before, we're entering into a series about justice. And justice is an interesting thing. I think it's good to lay out a vision. So it's courtroom language, a judge, justice, verdict, um, where God is both the judge but also our arbiter, also our, our advocate. It's a, it's a strange vision that made sense to the people then, and sometimes we just need to rethink the vision to help us understand it now. God had a vision that everybody would be equal in every way possible. Everything would be shared. Everybody would have what they need. No one would have too much. No one would have too little. Sadly, this is more our reality. There are haves and there are have-nots. There was even something built into the scripture, the Jubilee, to bring everything back every 49 years, but it never happened. Because we like this. So justice is about not always doing what we think is fair. If everything is going to be brought back to equal, to bring this up, this will have to come down. We'll have to meet in the middle, which means those who have will lose some, so that those who have not will gain some. And this is the goal. Now, we sometimes think that this is where our happiness lies, and this is what will bring us all we want. But God consistently says, serve the poor be with them, they seem to have a better perspective of God's vision than these folks. So we'll think about justice and all that it means. Now, the flip side of justice, it sounds like a painful word for the haves, because it is. But there's great joy in the life that God offers when we just trust that this is way better. We'll sit with that in our justice series. Uh, I did youth work for 15 years prior to taking my first pastoral appointment. Uh, I was a teenager when I started youth work. I don't know how in the world anyone allowed that to happen, but they did, and I did. Uh, and I remember working with teenagers, and I learned very quickly that they were a lot like me, that I knew when I walked into a space, I could gauge who was there, and I'd know what was expected of me. If it was at school, I knew what the teachers wanted. If that principal was walking down the hallway, I knew how I needed to change my behavior in the moment. If I went home for my parents, I knew what they wanted. If I went to church to be around the pastor, I knew what the pastor wanted. Always adjusting. You remember doing this as a teenager? Yes. Teenagers do this so well that they wonder, who am I? Because they're constantly just being who everyone else wants them to be. And it's a struggle to try to f figure out who you are. But as a youth worker, I would see the best. You know, I'd try to convince myself otherwise. But then I'd hear a story about someone who got in trouble and what they said or did. Uh, and that would remind me that they're just human. And it was strange that I would gain a whole new perspective of them. And we would actually enter into a deeper relationship when we moved forward from that point. That always happens that way. Anybody ever show up to their parents' house? I mean, we're, unless I'm the only one that's different, or is everybody here with me? Were you any different? Hey, you remember showing up to your parents' house? They knew what you did, but you didn't know they knew what you did. And so you walked in, and you were just cruising along, doing what's expected, thinking everything's hunky-dory, and then all of a sudden they let you know what it is they know. And then you realize that everything you did walking in the door that day didn't seem very sincere. I was doing what you expected, Mom and Dad. I am this good person. I am this great son. I would never disappoint you. And the whole time they're thinking, yeah, but I know what you did when I wasn't looking. Somebody's, somebody else has had that conversation. Yeah. Uh, as a father, I hope my kids act the way, well, 
Maybe not act always the way they act at home, but I hope they act as I've taught them to act when I'm not around. I hope. And I'm going to learn that they don't, that they're doing the same thing we've all done. Um, there's a place, this is the place Isaiah begins. God is called Yahweh in the passage. That's the formal name. And, and the first of the prophets in the Older Testament is Isaiah. So the Older Testament's divided into sections. The first prophet is Isaiah. Page one is what we read today. Introducing all that the prophets are going to say is what we heard today. It's not really a easing us into it, is it? It's like the parent who knows what we've done and needs to have a tough conversation with us. God is personified as a parent. God is, God is personified as a father and also a groom. And then Israel is personified as a daughter and also a bride. And the idea is the relationship that a parent to a child and that a bride and a groom, all of this somehow is what we are to have with God. Now, Yahweh knows what the people have done outside of the temple. The problem doesn't lie inside of the temple. If this was the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there would be the Holy of Holy where God dwells. There's a curtain hanging in front of it. And then just outside is a court that only the priests can be a part of. And then just outside of that is where all the men of Israel can be a part of. And then just outside of that are where the women of Israel can be a part of. And then just outside that is the court of the Gentiles where the proselytes, the people that had converted, could be a part of. And then there's the wall and there's the rest of the world. Now, people were happy to come in to the temple and serve and praise and offer offerings and thank God. But God's saying, yeah, but I know what you do outside of the temple. And we need to have a talk. And we realize, like a parent, God seeks to address the behavior before it leads down a path of destruction. My parents did it for me, and I'm so thankful I never was then. Anybody else? Were you thankful for your parents' discipline in the moment? No. Are you thankful for it now? Are your kids thankful for it in the moment? No. One day they will be. God, the parent, is laying down some conversation. God seeks life for us, just like a parent would. God seeks for the church to dance and celebrate and be a part of all the joy that life can bring. That's why we got the law. That's why we had it in the first place, the Ten Commandments. It doesn't bring us healing itself, but if we allow it to guide our relationships with God and others, life and joy come from that. If we're in right relationship, we experience the grace of God fully. We come here every Sunday and we bring our offerings and we praise and we pray and we do these things in the room. We know here how we're supposed to live. But are we obedient when we step out into the rest of the world, away from the church body, when no one's watching? Do we live as God expects us to beyond the walls? Or are we making choices, participating in conversations, Expressing our emotions and engaging in behaviors that maybe don't reflect the life we claim we want. These are serious questions. I am guilty. Anybody else with me? Okay. We come here because we know we're guilty. Amen? Yes. These are serious questions that I hope my children will take seriously when it comes to their behavior outside of the home, and I hope we take seriously. We want to be in right relationship with God, yes? God has given us the law to guide us into this right relationship with God and others, yes? So the prophet might ask, do you come to offer your praise, your thanksgiving, your prayers with clean hands? 
John Wesley, have you ever heard of him? I hope so. John Wesley is the founder of our denomination, our faith, the, the Methodist theology, Wesleyan theology, the Methodist church, all came from John Wesley. And he was quite an amazing man. He took his faith very seriously. And he sought to teach people that God's grace is available to us all when we experience a change of heart, not necessarily a change of behavior. He established a new order to the church. And through twists and turns and splits and mergers, which become our denomination today. Now, they had classes and societies, okay? They, he started amassing groups of large groups of people in different towns. And so he organized classes and societies. It's the words given. So a class was a small group, five to seven people, maybe 10. And they would sit in a circle and they would ask questions and you'd have to answer them. So imagine for a moment that we're going to do this today. We're not, but imagine for a moment. Here's question one. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? Another question. Did the Bible live in me today? Another one. Do I disobey God in anything? And then you share. That's just three of the 22 questions. Anybody want to do a class later? <laughs> Probably not. Well, this week in our series, we're going to focus on what John Wesley broke down, uh, the rules of faith, the general rules, the three general rules. One is do no harm. Two is do good. And three is attend upon all the ordinances of God. This week, we're going to focus on number one. Now, we can look to passages like Isaiah and uh, see how doing no harm is a separate act from doing good. Because we all participate in things that do harm, and we need to stop that and start doing good things. For Wesley, doing no harm in his context meant no buying or selling of slaves. Now, this was 100, 150 years prior to the concept of abolition and abolishing slavery. It was a time when the church supported it. You could point to scripture, talk about why owning slaves was okay. It's how it was meant to be. We can find it in Paul's writings. We can find it in the Old Testament. We can find it everywhere. But Wesley wasn't falling for this misconception because what Wesley realized when he came from England over to America for the first time and saw American Indians in chains, he realized that they're people. They are people as much as anyone else is people. They are daughters and sons of God as much as anyone else is. So to love God, you must love all people and do no harm to them. He was ahead of his time. Another thing Wesley might say is doing no harm, or that he did say, was not having conversations that tear others down. We don't gossip or spread hatred here, do we? But let me tell you about someone I know that does, right? Yeah, we do it. We do it. We do it uh, all sorts of people. Wesley would say that's doing harm. So let me ask you, are the people who live across the street your neighbors? Yes? All right, there you go. Are the people who pass you by in the grocery store your neighbors? Are the people who worship in the mosque your neighbors? 
Are the people who are campaigning to be members of Congress or your president your neighbors? Yes. Yes. Do no harm to them. Another way Wesley described harm or he'd ask this question, have you been buying luxuries for yourself instead of helping the poor? Now there's the financial poor and there's poor in many other ways. The poor in scripture almost always is referring to something way bigger than finances. Everyone was poor in Israel. It's referring to people who were vulnerable, who did not have protection from the system, who did not have protection literally, didn't have a home, who was a widow, who didn't have her husband's name to give her status in the community, an orphan who didn't have parents to do that for them. These are the poor. This echoes our passage in Isaiah about seeking justice, rescuing the oppressed, defending the orphan, and pleading for the widow. The term poor is big. These vulnerable people who are not protected and who often experience the most harm. So who experiences harm in our world today? Who is vulnerable? Who is attacked? Who is not offered benefits from the systems in which we participate? Whose voice is not heard? Or worse yet, whose voice is ignored? So if we were asked the question, have we been helping the poor or tending to our own luxuries? I'd have to hang my head. Do no harm to them. This is hard. This is tough. Confronting ourselves is hard. But we must take it seriously. If we're going to approach God and offer praise and thanksgiving, God wants to see us live that out well beyond the walls. Our obedience to God following these rules, it doesn't determine the grace we receive from God, does it? You don't act right and then receive from God. That would, that would make it not grace. Grace is something you get when you don't deserve it. Our obedience comes from our desire, if we're doing it right, our obedience comes from our desire to seek the life that God assures us is there. It's there for us for the taking. True life, fullness of life, eternal life, salvation, healing, and that we acknowledge that only God knows how to truly give us all of that. Our Isaiah passage begins strongly with difficulty and even offense, and Isaiah goes on for another 50-some chapters. But underneath all of it, and we find it in our passage today, is hope. Always. Always hope. The name Isaiah, it's simply a proclamation. It, says, it means Yahweh may save. That's what Isaiah means. Right in the name, we find hope. After proclaiming the leaders of Israel as the leaders of Sodom, as after proclaiming the people of Gomorrah, which he's labeling the people of Israel, we find an invitation to sit down with God at the table and settle it. An invitation. Now, real quick, the, the term Sodom and Gomorrah, this can distract us, this can lead us in directions that wasn't meant to take us. Uh, Ezekiel 16.49 makes it clear what Sodom and Gomorrah is referring to. Ezekiel 16.49 says, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were proud. 
had plenty to eat, and enjoyed peace and prosperity. But she didn't help the poor and the needy. That's the sin. Now we find it in the story when two angels come to visit, and they are not part of the system. They are outsiders, and they are vulnerable and exposed because they have no place to stay. Lot, who was a godly man, seeks to protect them, to shelter them, and invites them into his home. Now, the cities were so twisted that they were going to humiliate and shame the outsiders in an act of inhospitable hatred. And so to protect them and not have them go through that, Lot gave his daughters instead, and that deserves a whole nother discussion and a world that's so far removed from ours that I think we often miss what actually happened there. But the point is that Israel had, come, had become a place where the vulnerable were no longer a priority and greed had become a common way of life. That's why they're called Sodom and Gomorrah. And truthfully, humanity is always in danger of going down this destructive path because this is, this is tempting. Yes? This is, I like this. But God invites us to the table to reason, and that's our hope. We have hope to have a conversation with our parent about our behavior, that we might have our blood-soaked hands washed clean, even to become like a sacrificial lamb that actually demonstrates our penitence and our repentance. It closes with this. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, which is what God wants for us. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be instead eaten by the sword. Another way to say that is God saying, you can keep acting as you're acting, but you know where that's taking you? It's taking you into destruction. So you can either turn and let me lead you into life, or you can keep going down your path, and you're the one that's going to be led. You're going to lead yourself right to destruction. I don't have to do it. You're doing it yourself. So we must answer the question, are we willing to live obediently? And know this, that the question can't be answered in this room. It has to be answered outside of this room, when no one's watching, when the church has no idea what you're doing or thinking, when you're on your own. It must be answered out there. That's what God is trying to tell the people. The good news is this, my friends. When we go out there, God is seeking for us to have all fullness of life all the time, so much that Jesus was sent to show us the way and to even pay the price as we resisted justice to emerge from the grave to prove to us that everything that God brings to us through Jesus is true and cannot be conquered by death so that we might have the Holy Spirit and we're never alone out there. We always have God leading. Will we be obedient?